Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Spanish Football Podcast with me, Phil Kitchman, Ladies and Dr. Sidlow. Obviously, there's no La Liga for us to talk about, but fortunately, uh, Spain were in action uh, over the weekend. Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Fortunately, Spain. Uh, sorry, we're, we're not starting on that, are we? What do you mean? Surely we've got to start on the weekend's big game. All right, we'll get to the Asturian derby in a minute, Sydney. But as I was going to say, fortunately, Spain were in action in a um, glorified, friendly slash major European final uh, in the Nations League against France on Sunday. The uh, climax of this uh, new competition, which I've I've rather taken to. Um, It was great to see Spain take a really young squad to this tournament. Obviously, we discussed, I think last week on our bonus podcast, the the game that they played against Italy in the semi-finals. We'll talk about the uh, the final as well against against France. So they they beat the European champions in Italy. They were up against the world champions and they lost. They lost 2-1. They gave it though, Sid. They gave it a real go. Um, losing in somewhat controversial circumstances, we can we can touch on the controversy uh, as well in, in in just a moment. But that's not really like us. We prefer to talk about the football, although there is a bit of controversy for us to get stuck into as well. But but generally speaking, Spain did a did, did a really good job in these two games. We could touch on the controversy just about as much as Eric Garcia touched on that through ball, couldn't we? Just <laughs> not very much, but enough. <laughs> um, yeah, Spain did play very well, and and I think you're right that the the feeling post-game, listening to the players talk, was disappointing. disappointment at having lost, particularly in the way that they lost. Um, but a sense of optimism, a sense that this is a team that's being built now. And mm-hmm. there's definitely something there. Obviously, we saw this at the Euros um, in the fact that they got to the semi-final and were probably the better side against Italy. We saw it in them defeating Italy in the semi-final of this competition and in this performance. I suppose if we were going to be hypercritical, we would say again that for all the control, Spain probably didn't create sufficient, really clear chances um, and, and got undone by a France team that, you know, with the quality that France have got, and the, the two goals were brilliant, by the way, taking aside the controversy over the over the second goal. Both of them are brilliant goals. Spain's goal was really, really good. Uh, and, and Spain looked very, very good indeed. There's, there's one or two big flaws in it, but we're seeing the emergence of Gavi in particular. Um, yesterday, Ferran, who played through the middle, was playing on the right and he received loads and loads of the ball, certainly in the first hour or so of the game and kept running up France and caused them real problems. You saw, I thought, a brilliant performance from Busquets. But maybe there is a question mark there about what the transition to the post-Busquets era is like. And also there's all sorts of question marks about why Busquets can look so good for Spain and to be perfectly honest, not very good for Barcelona, or at least not very good very often for Barcelona. Um, and all round, I think you'd look at Spain and say, this is... This is a really good side. Uh, You've touched on a a few things there in your opening gambit, which we're going to go into slightly more depth in in just a moment. Um, How excited should we be about the next World Cup? And do you think that there is growing... I mean, (laughs) 
assuming Spain get there, of course. But do you think there is a growing sentiment of people getting behind this Spain national team? Because quite a few people slash Real Madrid fans in Spain yesterday weren't supporting Spain. Yeah, and that's about the noise around the national team and about the identity of the manager as much as the, the football, isn't it? Although, although I think it is true that coming into this Nations League, which probably, this was probably silly in the first place, but let, let's go through it. Coming into this Nations League, there was, I think, a lap, lack of opportun, uh, opportunism. Op, op, optimism is the word I'm looking for. I'll try and learn to speak English. A lack of optimism around the team, a sense that they weren't really progressing, which is a bit bizarre. And the reason why I say it's a bit stupid is come off the back of the Euros mm. and then a couple of bad qualifying games and suddenly it feels like, oh, this is a disaster again. Well, no, yeah. it's a couple of bad games. Um, I think it does pose questions about the type of teams that Spain play well against, by the way. Mm. Because, of course, we've seen them perform well in the Euros against Italy, uh, against France and Italy here, and have difficulties against teams that play more defensively and mm. that is a kind of a much broader question about styles and about how certain styles perform better against other certain styles of teams um, and there wasn't a huge amount of optimism and I think there is now and I think there is now partly because again as happened at the Euros some of Luis Enrique's more questionable decisions turn out to be the ones that have indicated mm. um, in the Euros lots of people were unsure about Danny Olmo and he played very well um, I mean, just to focus it on two players, Olmo then and Gavi now. And I think mm-hmm. it's more than that because back then it was also Unai Simon. Um, it was also Emmerich Laporte. There was, uh, I think, one or two doubts about the construction of the midfield with Pedri. And of course, Pedri absolutely won people over at the Euros. So I think there is more optimism about the World Cup now. And by the way, and I, I think you mentioned it yesterday, um, look at the players that Spain haven't got available at the moment. Mm-hmm. So you add to this team, and we're worrying about them maybe not creating chances, not taking chances. You add to this team Morata, Moreno, and Ansu in particular. Mm. Mm. And then you think, well, maybe some of those doubts up front get resolved by that. The doubt then becomes, which one of those players even get in the team? Yeah, but that's a nice doubt to have, isn't it? It's nice, yes, nice, it is, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, nice problem for, uh, for Luis Enrique to have. Uh, you've mentioned Busquets and the vast difference between his performances for... For Barcelona and and Spain, someone said on the radio. I think he he looks when he plays for Barcelona. He looks like he's about forty five, and he looks like he's twenty five when he's playing for Spain. It's an overly simplistic um, argument, but he does look very very different. Yeah, he does. Uh, we've used this phrase before, but let's throw it in again. Front foot. Hmm. I think there's, there's there's a very significant difference with Busquets between Busquets playing stepping forward, and that the play is there for him to step into. And Busquets being turned and forced backwards. Mm-hmm. And I think when he's turned and forced backwards, I think he has really big problems. I think when the structure around him is working. And of course, there's lots of ways of interpreting this. And one of them is to look at the difference between Luis Enrique and, and Ronald Koeman. Mm-hmm. And I'm relatively defensive of Koeman on the podcast in that I, I keep saying that the reality he talks about is a reality. Mm. You know, it is a reality. It's not just about him. But I actually think that with the resources he's got, there are some big question marks about him. I do think, put very bluntly, and I hate putting it as bluntly as this, you do sometimes look at Kuma and think, what exactly is he doing? In terms of what, you know, what's the, what, what's the model here? What's the idea that's, that's trying to underpin this? What exactly is it that, that he's trying to construct? Because sometimes you can see that it's not working, but you can see that there's a, if you like, a, a process and yes. with Kuman, I'm not always convinced, to be perfectly honest, that I can see a process, which probably is a really unfair thing to say, but, but I, I, I struggle to see it. Um, 
And and with the, with the Spanish national team, I think it's different because I think he has different players around him. It was very interesting. I thought I don't know about you. Yesterday, seeing Rodri play not as a pivot, but but sort of sort of alongside Busquets, fractionally yes. in front of him, but sort of alongside him. More maybe a little bit more as an interior, but it gave maybe a little bit of solidity there. And then Gavi on the other side, and Gavi as well is 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 aggressive and dynamic as well as being a good ball player. So so I think maybe that that suits. Um, that suits Busquets a bit. Although in theory, you know, Frankie Young, De Jong has some of those things at Barcelona. Although his uh, his physicality is about getting up and down the pitch rather than about getting into opponents. Um, so I think that's part of it. As I say, I think it's just about the collective functioning of it. Is that little bit better with the Spanish national team? I also think, and we hinted at this a minute ago when we were talking about different types of teams, that maybe we need to not allow ourselves to get overexcited by this because if you look at the Euros, for example, it took extra time to beat Croatia. It took penalties to beat Switzerland. In the two first games in the group stages, they struggled very, very badly to find a way through. Um, in one of those, I think you could argue that they were very unlucky. In the other, I think you would argue they really weren't very good at all. Um, and then obviously in qualifying, we've seen them struggle and lose, and lose quite badly actually to, to Sweden. Mm. You know, Sweden were the better side. And they are still... Also drawing 1-1 with Greece as well. Yes, of course, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, that was Greece being very strong defensively. And you could argue Spain were perhaps a little bit unlucky and should have taken their chances, but that's a recurring theme. If that happens once or twice, then fine. No, absolutely, and I would agree with you. Uh, If that happens once or twice, it's, you know, it's sort of, it can happen. But if it's a recurring theme, it does pose questions about, okay, is there some other way around this? Because there will be times when this happens again. And whether that's... And a Damatoro figure, which is what they claimed in the Euros, but didn't really work. Whether it's a forward that can get into the area and push teams back and, and play inside the area. So whether someone like, I don't know, Rafa Mir, for example, or a forward like that that can give you something different. We were talking about the, the for want of a better phrase, the Fernando Llorente paradigm the other day, <laughs> weren't we? That Spain wouldn't have won the World Cup without him, even though, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think he only played one game, which was the Portugal game, but they wouldn't have got through that, I don't think, without him. And so there's some question marks there. Um, but but all in all, it, it, it does look pretty good. I still think, I don't know about you, I still think doubts at the back. I, yeah, there, there are without doubts, doubts at the back. The Fernando Llorente paradigm, I think, is today's podcast uh, title. Uh, I like that. <laughs> uh, there are doubts at the back, but before we get to those, let's just expand upon the theme of Gavi. It's not uh, an exaggeration to say that his inclusion in the squad caused something of an earthquake in Spanish football journalism on the TV, on the radio and and in print. But it was proved to be absolutely justified. And he showed us, I mean, he's he's much better than I even imagined he could be. I mean, we've seen him play nicely for for Barcelona against Cadiz, against Levante and against uh, Atletico Madrid. But this is a next level against the European champions and the world champions. He didn't look out of place at all. It was extraordinary how good he looked. And you mentioned something that you might not associate with a small, technically gifted Barcelona player that he's got in abundance. His aggression. Oh, he's a feisty little bastard, isn't he? Yeah, it's, 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 it's great. And I think actually, in a way, I mean, I do think we need to be careful, perhaps, not to allow that mm. to, to get us too excited. Because in a way, part of what we're clinging to is, is exactly this. Mm. Here's a 17-year-old going in 
on Verratti and mm. going in on Pogba. And, you know, the first foul in the game, I think, was him after a minute and a half. Him mm. and Azpilicueta had both taken out French players in the, inside the first two and a half minutes. And you thought, oh, OK, this is, this is interesting. And, and that's, that was really nice to see. My worry would be, well, not my worry, but, you know, the concern in terms of judging him would be that we allow ourselves to get excited by that precisely because he's 17. Right. If you see what I mean. And of course, he won't be 17 forever. And that's not the basis of an entire career. But it is something a little bit different. Um, he was flying into tackles. He's good on the ball. There were a couple of really nice turns as well where yeah. he got away from players. And you just think it's true that at the end of it, you think, OK, there isn't, if you like, the kind of the the moment that defines him as a brilliant pass or a or an assist or whatever. But there was just that sense, as you say, I think that's it. The phrase you said, you said it there. It's not yeah. out of place. Yeah. In fact, it's almost like he's saying, you know what? You don't scare me. No. And, and I really like that about him. And a bit like, you know, a bit like actually, you know what? A certain parallel, it's not quite the same player, but it's parallel to what we were saying early in the season that one of the things that we liked about Mem- Memphis Depay mm. is that he doesn't seem to care. He doesn't care who you are. Mm. You know, and he doesn't care who he's supposed to be or who's been before. It was like, no, I'm doing this. Mm. And Gavi, there's a, there's a touch of that with Gavi as well. Very much so. He really didn't seem to care. And he was um, very, very influential in the first half. The second half, slightly less uh, yes. influential. Yeah. But yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. I think that's um, perhaps perhaps understandable. Uh, Spain did well, and they've got some superb young players, as we said. They've got some superb players who weren't available in this squad. If you think about the Euro 2020 squad and some of the really key members of that team, uh, Dani Olmo and Pedri, who, who started the semi-final against Italy, they were both out uh, uh, injured. Alvaro Morata, who scored the goal against Italy, he was out injured. Gerard Moreno, uh, he was out injured as well. Uh, Dani Carvajal is, in theory, the first choice right back. Obviously, he's out injured. Sergio Ramos hasn't been fit for God knows how long. And, and in theory, if he's fit, he's the starting centre-back. But he hasn't been fit for so long, we're beginning to question that now. Uh, there are a lot of key players missing, and yet they managed to produce this uh, two very, very promising performances. Uh, mentioning Sergio Ramos and mentioning the defensive deficiencies, uh, Eric Garcia was was brought in at, at centre-back to, to play alongside uh, Americ Laporte. Uh, there isn't yet a first-choice centre-back pairing. Is that a problem? Yes, and I think it's a problem not do you think so he, much... Do you think the... he, uh, Luis Enrique thinks it's a problem? Because he seems quite happy to chop and change. Um, right. Now, I think there are two ways of reading this. One is happy to top, chop and change because he sees lots of options. Two is he's chopping and changing because he hasn't found the other option yet. And because he's not entirely convinced by any of them. Because, for example, let's just take these two games. I don't think, but I might be wrong because obviously I'm not inside Luis Enrique's head and God knows it would be a crazy wild place to be. Um I don't think it's entirely coincidence that Eric Garcia comes back into this after a game in which Pal Torres is a little bit weak in the Italian goal. Uh-huh. You know that he, you know there's well, a it's, it's, over. It's, it's his fault. <laughs> it's his. It's his fault. I mean, it's not entirely his fault. There's a bit more to it because the whole thing suddenly opens up a bit more than it should. But exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I. I don't know, but I feel like it's perfectly possible that had he been ready for it. Uh, I don't know whether it was emotional, physical or a combination of the two things that Inigo Martinez would have started at Euros mm. rather than Powell or rather than Eric and that that may well have cemented his place at centre-back. Mm. And I do think that the chopping and changing at centre-back 
is probably not Luis Enrique thinking he's happy with lots of his options, but actually Luis Enrique thinking he's not happy with all of his options. Which I suppose does open the door, perhaps for, for Sergio Ramos to come back if he ever gets fit again. Mm. Although, I don't know about you, I, I suspect that Luis Enrique, in terms of the group dynamics, in terms of leadership and so on, probably prefers it without Sergio Ramos now anyway. Really? You think he's moved on now? I suspect he probably has. I don't know that, but I suspect he probably has, yeah. Because remember, before he got injured, he was, he was giving him, you know, he was giving him he minutes was trying to get right into the record. Center. Yeah. He was trying to get him to that record, yeah. Which, by the way, of course, there's a very strong possibility now that Ramos never, never makes it. And it looked like it was absolutely guaranteed. You think he's never going to play again for Spain? I think it's perfectly... Well, look at his age. Look at how long he hasn't played for. Look at the manager who now seems to be finding a, you know, a squad that works without him. I don't know how many friendlies there are between now and the World Cup. In other words, how many games that Luis Enrique would be prepared, if you like, to sort of use up mm. without them being... Do you see what I mean? I, I, I think it's plausible now that Ramos doesn't play again. Mm. All right. Wow. Well, that, that, that would be... Uh, a pretty big thing to happen, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's highly plausible that he that he doesn't play uh, again. Uh, are we giving Luis Enrique credit now, or are we still caveating what he's achieved by the fact that there have been moments of of serious doubts? Because as we've mentioned previously, he is a very very polemic figure here in Spain. There are loads of people that don't particularly like him, don't particularly like the way that he's working with the Spain national side, but he's achieving impressive results. Yeah, well, I think you've just said something very important there. You said, are we caveating this by the fact that there are some doubts about some of the things that that Mm. he's doing with the squad, yeah? And I think it's absolutely right to caveat it by some of the doubts about some of the things that are happening with the squad. Mm -hmm. The key is that in Spain, the caveat isn't about that. In Spain, the caveat is, I don't like Luis Enrique. Yes. The caveat is, look, he, he, he sticks his jaw out and he has a go at us. And, oh, he doesn't like the press. And I think it's absurd the, the debate around him in that sense. And it's true that he fuels it. And it's true that I suspect that he wants to fuel it. And I wonder if he's trying to cr- use that as part of his his uh, glue to bring the group together, you know, the, 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 the kind of the, the classic siege mentality thing. Mm. I don't know if anyone really buys into it, but, you know, there's there's some daftness towards him that, that possibly may well help him. And I, and I wonder if he is playing up on that. And in which case it's it's... Clever, I suppose. It's simplistic, but but it's uh, possibly a worthwhile approach. I think there are one or two doubts. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, and we talked about it going into the Euros. Doubts about the fact that the squad seems to change so often. Mm-hmm. And that we, at times you do wonder if he has a clear idea. But Luis Enrique clearly is a manager who likes a bit of friction, likes a bit of chaos. And I think that actually <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of what he's trying to do with the team, mm-hmm. it is stable structurally, uh, in terms of the idea of what he wants his players to do, that part of it is stable. And I think the, the, the performance of some of his players is absolutely... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Absolutely says that he's doing a good job. Mm-hmm. I think it is about him, a lot of it. I think his management of certain elements of that is is really, really, really good. I think listening to him in press conferences, and yes, I'm going to say this journalist in Spain who get very angry about him and the press conferences go in stupid other directions. But listen to him in press conferences when you ask him about the way that he's putting the team together. He gives really detailed answers mm. that actually convince. 
Mm. When he talks about where he wants players to be and why this, he wants this sort of position. For example, yesterday for Ran Torres, rather than through the middle, goes on the right-hand side. And, and he'll explain to you why that happens. He'll explain to you the role of Danny Olmo at a time when people are not sure that Danny Olmo should be in the team. He'll explain what he wants um, from his forwards. And he did, gave a really, really interesting, as well as important emotionally defence of Alvaro Morata during the Euros mm-hmm. when he kept putting him in and everyone was having a go at Morata he made a really really strong point there but also it was a tactical one about what Morata brings you what he gives other players what he ena- enables the rest of the team to do um, he then did this slightly weird thing in the Euros where well, I thought it was slightly weird but I completely understood why where he effectively attacked Gerard Moreno for missing chances because he said if that had been Morata you lot would have killed him mm. And I think he was absolutely right. I think it's borderline risky, that, because I wonder how Gerard Moreno feels about it. But he's prepared to say things and explain processes. And I, and I think, yes, you've got a really, really, really interesting manager there and the right manager for this young group of players. And who is a manager who is, by the way, and I think this is a, a probably worth saying as well, not just choosing young players. Because there are two different things when you bring young players through. One is giving them the chance and believing them. And, and continuing to believe in them. The other is giving them the chance and the structure and the clarity of role. So you feel that with Pedri coming in, it's partly because Luis Enrique knows exactly what Pedri gives you mm-hmm. and encourages Pedri to give you exactly that and builds the team of the, the part, that part of the pitch around Pedri so that it all works. That with Gavi, he's seen something he wants and he shifted that formation slightly. So Gavi didn't play right out on the right. He was sort of slightly in front of Busquets and, and Rodri at times. And that that's about saying, OK, I can see where you're most comfortable moving. Let's, let's move pieces around so, so we can get this to work. And so it feels like it's not just, oh, yeah, I'm great for the young kids because I put them in. But it's not only that, but I'm also helping them build a structure that works for them and obviously by extension works for the team. It is. It is working for the team. The team have got to the final of the final four of the Nations League and also the semi-finals of uh, Euro 2020. Let's see if they get to the World Cup because they've got two really big games next month. And as Enrique uh, prefaced Spain's involvement in the Nations League by saying the big games are next month. Almost looking at this as a sort of a free pass, really. Let's go out and try and enjoy ourselves and see what happens, which is essentially what happened. Not that they weren't taking it seriously, but they were definitely thinking that next month we've got these two big World Cup qualifiers against Sweden and, and, uh, and Greece. It is no, it's not Sweden, is it? It is Sweden. It's definitely Greece. Sweden and Greece, yeah. Sweden and Greece. Yeah. Sweden and Greece, and, and all three teams in theory have their fate in their own hands. Yes. So uh, it's huge. It's huge. And if you don't finish top of your World Cup qualifying group, you go into a, a very difficult uh, looking um, sort of playoff knockout round, and there's no guarantee that Spain will be at that that World Cup. So uh, next month is uh, possibly one of the defining months of uh, Luis Enrique's tenure uh, at the helm of the Spain national side. Uh, there are other stuff that we could talk about. Um, Mikel Oyarzabal, uh, the front three, uh, all sorts of things that we haven't touched upon. If there's something that you want us to talk about, send us a question and we'll answer it on our Q&A podcast, which is out tomorrow for patrons at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. You get uh, hours and hours and hours and hours of uh, bonus content a month for just uh, one pound a week so sounds like good value to me if you want to come and join us and are interested in Spanish football patreon.com forward slash TSFP uh, we mentioned it at the top of the program said tongue-in-cheek saying it was the the big aspect of the weekend the Asturian derby in the Segunda División Real Oviedo against Sporting Quijón this is a really big derby and it's a really feisty derby as well between two teams that really 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 don't like each other usually the football 
isn't great. Usually the matches aren't spectacular uh, in terms of aesthetic spectacles. Again, it wasn't brilliant at the weekend, but you were there, Sid. You were there to experience an Asturian derby with people for the first time in what seems like far too long. Tell us a bit about that experience. No, it was brilliant. It was just brilliant to be back. It was brilliant to see the Tartiere not far off being full. Um, it, you know, the decision to allow 100% came quite late. I think ticket sales there therefore kind of had to be accelerated. The 21,000 in the ground, really, really noisy. It's actually a better game than the derbies normally are. Yes. In terms of the yeah, quality yeah. of the game. And the derbies <laughs> are normally really terrible. This was, this was reasonably fun. It was quite open. There were chances at both ends. Um, from a very, very very biased Oviedo perspective it felt to me like five stupid minutes blew it for Oviedo a little bit because they were they were leading with what was it 10 minutes to go yeah and when Sporting scored Oviedo had spent the previous three or four minutes giving the ball away in really dangerous positions and almost getting caught and it felt like it was coming and I think ultimately a draw is is probably the right decision but there's that frustration there there's also from my point of view that frustration of it's another draw for Oviedo we are the Villarreal of the second division uh, oh, yeah? six draws out of nine games so far this season and it felt a little bit like at 1-0, by making a change, it was take a defender off, put a midf- sorry, take a forward off, put a midfielder on. It was a little bit of a, mm. right, we hold on to this now. And that always sends a message that sort of says, come on, then you can attack us. What? Um, tell us a bit about this rivalry, Sydney. Obviously, we've spoken about this yeah. in Derby before on, on, on the podcast. But you look at it and you, and you get the sense that there is, it can get pretty nasty. Oh, it, it can genuinely be a bit unpleasant at yeah. times. Um, and and unnecessarily so, I think, sometimes. I mean, look, a lot of, a lot of my Oviedo supporting friends will, will, will say to me that I'm sort of naive about it and, and too nice about sporting and I don't appreciate what's happened all over the years and, and all the rest of it. And then there may well be an element of truth in that. These are two teams from, you know, let's start with the very basics, from the same region, Asturias, but not the same city. Yeah. So it feels um, within the city. I suppose that makes you more insular, perhaps, yeah. because you're not day-to-day. It's a bit like the that, Galician oh, derby, isn't it, with Vigo and La Coruña? I, yeah, so. I suppose it probably is. There probably is an element and, and of that. Two, two, two cities with very different identities as well. Very much there. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, and, and that sort of plays part of it. Oviedo is is the capital of, of the principality. And certainly in the centre, at least, kind of conscious of its status, status as the capital. It's a, it's a very kind of elegant... Um, very clean city. Gijón uh, is on the sea. Would would see itself and, and a lot again. A lot of it's, it's, I'm actually pissing off the Oviedo fans probably more than the sporting fans here. A lot of my Oviedo sporting mates will say you know they really dislike this idea of Oviedo as a kind of a bourgeois place um, <laughs> because certainly you know once you get outside that very clean centre, it, it's a city like many others and it has neighbourhoods like many others. But certainly Gijón's kind of self identity would be perhaps as a bigger city perhaps more of an industrial city, although it's also on the sea, which is which is gorgeous, and the seafront is, is lovely in, in Gijón. That I think Oviedo, um, possibly a bit more identified to the city, and, and Gijón maybe a bit more identified with the, with the uh, what do you call the Cuenca Minera in English? What would you call that? The kind of the, the, the pit villages, what used to be yeah. a mining region yeah. of, the, of, 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 of Asturias. But two huge, big clubs who both think they should be in the first division, both aren't, uh, and and in Oviedo's case, haven't been since two thousand and one. In Sporting's case, they've been up up and down a couple of times since then. Um, but yeah, the, the the rivalry is very very intense, very very edgy, and I think unnecessarily is... so. It feels political at times as well. I think because it's two different cities. Okay, okay, and I think there's an element of that def- definitely. Is that some um, is that um, uh, some kind of explanation as to why there were so many sort of aggressive looking police there? On Saturday. Well, I mean, so the, the very first time I went to the, an Asturias derby was in Gijón in 1997. 
And when I told friends from Oviedo that I was going to go, they told me, and they weren't even joking, go and buy a workman's helmet. And I, and, and I didn't in the end, but I did wear, wear my hood up and, and, and a cap and try and protect my head a little bit. Um, because genuinely, on the, well, this doesn't happen quite like this anymore. But we went on a train from Oviedo to Gijón, which is only about 30 kilometres away, and en route, on the stations en route, as we went through them, because we didn't stop at them, Gijón fans were waiting on the platform to chuck things at the train <laughs> as we got close to the Gijón. They marched, the police marched us from the, from the station to the stadium. It was about three kilometres along the seafront. Um, it kind of boxed in by riot police with Gijón fans sort of waiting for us and chanting us and, and occasionally throwing things at us. Uh, and it's not quite like that now. And, 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 you know, I should add here that it's not a lot of fun for them coming to Oviedo either. This time round, um, I don't fully understand this. Uh, Sporting said they turned down the tickets. They didn't want the tickets because the police, um, the, the the police, what would you call it, dispositivo, uh, operation mm-hmm. was, was, was too much. And, and I actually absolutely agree with them on this. Basically, uh, Sporting's fans were going to have to be within a police bubble from when they left Gijón to when they got back to Gijón. They were going to be made to go to the ground uh, and be inside the Oviedo Stadium at least two hours before kickoff, right, and wait about an hour after the game. So in other words, in total, they would have been in this police bubble maybe seven hours. Mm. In this police bubble, no food, no drink in a police bubble. And they were like, look, we're not doing this. Uh, in the end, about 300 came, which I don't fully understand because they said they'd renounced the tickets and given them back. So I don't understand who the 300 were because they'd made a point of saying, we're not going, our fans are not going. Um, up in the kind of glass-fronted bit at the top of the stadium. And again, I'm, I'm really not a fan of those glass-fronted areas at all because normally they're, normally they're, you know, you can't see anything, they're enclosed, they're badly kept. I think fans are treated really badly. But um, Sporting complained about this as if it was Oviedo's fault. Was this a police decision? There were discussions between the two clubs, but it's a police decision. And the same will happen to Oviedo fans when they come back. Um, so in theory, there weren't any Sporting fans, although, as I say, about 300 came. There were also some sporting fans dotted around the ground, sitting with yes, the other mates. Yes, I saw that, yeah. So, so, there was, so, so uh, there's a bit of me that thinks, in a, and I know it's risky, this. One of the ways to stop trouble is to sort of normalise the presence of other fans. But I really, I'm not naive enough as to think it's as easy as that, as simple as that. Um, but anyway, at the weekend... Do we want huge... that? Do we want what? Fans sitting together? In a derby... No, but you do. Well, yes and no. Yes, you do. Um, but what I mean is, you normalise fans being there. You don't. Not every fan should be treated as a criminal. And that, that, oh I no, think no, a criminalisation of football no, fans yeah. in Spain, which I think is a is a real problem. And I think what it actually does is it deepens the, if you like, deepens the the aggression rather mm. than, rather than stopping it. Mm. Although, admittedly, you know, there's an argument that says, well, once we accept that it could be trouble, we then have to do it like this. And 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 there was a bit of trouble this time. And it's bizarre that there was trouble this time because there was trouble between police and Oviedo fans. But in my view, and, and I say this from a very biased position and purely from what I saw. So what happened was Oviedo's bus leaves the team hotel and drives to the ground. And it's only it's not even a kilometre. Mm-hmm. So it's the team hotel I was in and we watched the bus come out and a bus goes up this street. Straight line up the street, the fans are waiting on either side with fireworks and flares and cheering and clapping as the bus goes by. And then the fans started following the bus. So walking up the road, banging on the side of the bus. The players are banging on the windows and cheering. And at one point, the police decided to charge to push the fans out the way. And I don't understand. They're banging on the side of their own team's bus. There's no, you know, there's, this is, all right, maybe it's a little bit chaotic, but it's, but it's 
but it's them sort of being part of this paraphernalia of of welcoming the team to the ground and getting them going and all the rest of it. And so there's and the police were seriously tooled up and very very heavy handed. Um, and then yes, of course, you then get um, you get one or two idiots chucking a few things. But it just struck me as it sort of felt a little bit like this was going to happen in part because the police had sort of decided it was going to happen, which might be very unfair. And there may well be people listening to this who, who will understand the police mechanics much better than me. But but it it, it, it felt a little bit unnecessary to me. Uh, it was also um, just, a, you know, a, 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 a moment. It wasn't the whole okay. thing or anything. You were with a 10-year-old boy. Was he was he scared at any moment? I don't think so, no. There was one moment where... I mean, there was one moment in which I sort of kind of said I go up that side and stay there and we sort of went up one side <laughs> side of the street and sort of what but it wasn't you know it wasn't, wasn't loads and loads of shots but what had happened then was we went to the top of the road and we saw police getting out of vans and lining up as if in military formation with their sticks with their truncheons with the big guns that shoot the gas canisters and I thought they're about to run down the road and really lay in here when there's literally no need like genuinely, no need to. And I'm watch. I was genuinely tempted to kind of go up to one of the policemen and say, "Lads, it's it's nothing. It's all right. Don't worry about it." Sort of thing. And then I thought I'll do that. They'll probably whack me. They're not not a great idea. Yeah, they would literally probably have just hit you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there we go. I mean, it's all it's all experience. As long as the boy was all right and you know, sort of viewed it. And, and the game itself was brilliant. And, the game and inside the stadium, good, so, yeah, it was yeah. it's fabulous. The atmosphere was fabulous. And and as I say, it really was just fans running up the road behind the bus, and then and then. And then, 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 you know, a couple of moments from police trying to kind of push them out of the way. And then, then of course, it, it starts. Hmm. Well, there we go. That's what happened in the Asturian derby off the pitch as well as uh, on the pitch. It was uh, part of a full round of fixtures in the Segunda División where Almeria top on 19 points. They drew 1-1 with Las Palmas, sporting a second a point behind, Ponferradina a third, Tenerife a fourth, and Eibar a fifth. After a 3-3 draw at Mirandes, there was another derby this weekend, the South of Madrid derby, or the sort of second South of Madrid derby, Fuenlabrada beating Leganes at 2-1. Uh, Ex-Real Madrid defender Sotillos with an 89th minute uh, winner. Tonight it's uh, Zaragoza against Huesca. Um, we're coming to the end of today's uh, programme. I'm conscious of the fact, Sydney, that we have not touched upon a debate which is being, if not raged, but certainly promoted by certain sector of the media here in Spain. Don't know whether we should mention it or not. If I say the words Benzema Ballon d'Or, what kind of feelings would they inspire in you? Well, they would inspire in me... Uh, uh... An admiration and an awe for how brilliantly Benzema's played over the last year. Uh, at the same time, I will admit a certain kind of oh god yes. about the sort of the, the Ballon d'Or sort of noise. Um, is he a candidate? I suppose he probably is. Uh, my guess is that the winner would be between Lewandowski, Messi, Benzema, and Jorginho. I would imagine, but I don't know. Um, I I've. Over the last couple of days, it heard quite a lot. And obviously, you know, the broader question, which I suppose, in essence, you're sort of asking, is this idea that there has to be a campaign for the Real Madrid player and not for the Spaniards who are mm. on the shortlist. You know, so you, what is it? Gerard Moreno, Cesar Azpilicueta, and who's the third? Pedri. There's three of them. And Pedri. Now, I'll be honest with you, 
I think that's justified up to a point in that none of those three are realistically candidates, genuinely. Had Chelsea, uh, sorry, had Spain won the Euros with Azpilicueta in it, then maybe in the same way that Jorginho is for Italy and, and Chelsea, maybe Azpi becomes a genuine candidate. I think it's one of the others. I don't know, honestly, enough about how well Lewandowski's played, except, you know, the broad headline figures, and I'd love people who watched him in Germany. I say how well he's played, by the way, not just the number of goals. Um, as, as to whether Lewandowski is the key candidate. I suppose there's a residual sense of deserving uh, it because he was denied it the year that they took the Ballon d'Or away, which I still think was an absurd decision, by the way. <laughs> you know, there was a year without a Ballon d'Or. I thought that, was, that would have probably have been his as, the, as Bayern won the Champions League and he was the outstanding player and so on. Um, one brief thing I'll say is I think Benzema's been wonderful over the last 12 months, but I've been hearing a lot over the last few days of, oh, no one has played. If you just look at this as just how well they've played, it has to be Benzema, which I've, I've, I've found interesting because it's not an argument that's been positive before because it's always been, you know, look at who's... It should have been Xavi and Iniesta when Spain won the World Cup, for example, or, or, or you know, Ronaldo's just won the Champions League, so it's got to be him, or Messi's just won this, so it's got to be him. And it's not often been that, well, just look at how well they've played. And how who has played the best football over this over this last year? Or and that's the thing. I must admit, I always think of this last year as last season rather than including this. But I suppose it does include this season as well, which definitely strengthens Benzema's case. But you know, the truth is, who played the best football last year? It was still Messi, wasn't it? It usually is. I think if we're yeah. talking about that, um, Benzema... but Benzema's a wonderful player, and I, I, I would I wouldn't have any problem that's, at all with him. So is so is Lewandowski, to be honest, really. Yeah, I mean. exactly. Lewandowski's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels to me, and, and also you know the, the the thing that was often held against Messi is he doesn't win in an international tournament, and this time around he did. Yeah, and he was completely brilliant in it. Admittedly, it's the it's the it's the Copper America, not the Euros, which probably makes a difference. And I just realised now, Phil. I, I, you just tricked me into spending four or five minutes talking about the Ballon d'Or. It's easily done, Sid. It's easily done. <laughs> Everyone else is doing it here, so um, it feels uh, a remiss if we don't at least at least mention it. But yeah, it's strange how much time gets spent talking about the Ballon d'Or here compared to, say, the UK, for example, where did I, well, it's did nothing ever, but did an I afterthought. I remember having this conversation with Michael Owen because um, Michael Owen won the Ballon d'Or obviously when he was at Liverpool. Yeah, and. Um, he tells the story of basically Gerald Julio taking him aside and trying to impress on him how big this was. Because mm. Michael didn't have a, a sense that this was the you know the thing. <laughs> this is this is genuinely huge, and I don't think Michael fully appreciated that. And I remember having this conversation with him and sort of saying, "Well." Tell you what, mate, you didn't talk about it much in England. We were talking about you here in Spain and everyone was laying into you because you'd robbed it off Raul. Um, that was the, sort of the, the, the big argument. And, and I think he started to appreciate probably how big it was when he arrived at Real Madrid because in a way that was the reason they bought him. Because the Ballon d'Or, if you like, is the calling card, the, 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 the definitive proof that this is a, a truly great player. Um, I suppose the problem with the Ballon d'Or, as is the problem with any kind of list, that is, you know, who is the best, blah, 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 is that so often we focus on a player who hasn't got it, not the player who has. So rather than celebrating, uh, let's say for argument's sake, Lewandowski wins it. Rather than celebrating what a brilliant player Lewandowski is, wow, fantastic, really pleased for him, blah, blah, it'd be like, well, why did Messi win it? Mm. Why did Benzema win it? Mm. You know, why didn't whoever win it? And that, that's sort of the frustrating thing is we sometimes, and you know, the Messi-Ronaldo thing did that, didn't it? That people get really furious Oh, it's a disgrace. How can Ronaldo only be the second best player in the world? Do you know what? <laughs> second best in the world is still really quite good. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Uh, listen, uh, we're going to leave it there. We've talked Spain, we've talked Asturias derby and, and, and Ballon d'Or as well. So, and uh, you know what? We avoided the refereeing polemic or most of it. Oh, we did. We didn't even talk about the refereeing polemic. All right, well, we'll talk about that on, 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 on Patreon. So if, if, if that's up your street, then come and join us at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. We've got the Q&A pod tomorrow, bonus pod on Thursday, and the latest episode of TSFP Presents Messy Moments is coming up this week as well. So uh, join us uh, on Patreon. Otherwise, we'll be back here next week as ever, avoiding talking about refereeing polemics and, and trying to concentrate <laughs> on the football. Speak to you then. Adios. Cheerio.